0: Uh, place more than in the theater where we wish we knew the other side we wish we knew exactly the situation that all people referring to and talking about and all of that and it's, it's really difficult for us and that's certainly true in this next section so we're going to read it we're going to talk a little bit about at least what I think the context may be and uh, what this means so we're in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians uh, somebody read 5 through 11 But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me. But all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which is inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay. Now, Paul is really using a lot of bad terms here. You know, if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree... In order not to say too much to all abuse, sufficient for such a one is this punishment that was afflicted by the majority. I mean, he's not naming names, he's not specifying crimes, he's not telling us what the punishments were. I mean, it's just so vague. You know, you're thinking, wow, what is he talking about? What is this any and, you know, he and punishment and sorrow and so forth? It looks to me like Paul is writing very carefully, cautiously, because he doesn't want to further shame this man who is repenting and turning back to God. And for him to have specified crimes and punishments and to call out his name might have made it more um, awkward or discouraging for him, and that's what he's trying to avoid. So they would have known what he was talking about, but it's less clear for us. Uh, I personally, though I'm open to other possibilities, I personally lean toward the idea that we're talking about the man from 1 Corinthians 5 who was living with his father's wife, and that uh, Paul encouraged them to del- deliver him to Satan and not to associate with him, for to destroy his flesh, so the spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus it looks to me like this fits that. If this is not that, then it's probably something like that. Um, the problem maybe with saying that this is the man in verse Corinthians 5 is that we are, we are another visit and letter away from it. And if there's something that happened in that subsequent visit or was addressed in that later letter that may have been closer to this, that may have been what Paul was talking about, but if so we know almost nothing about it. So I think it's simpler and it seems to fit okay to me just to assume for the sake of argument that that's who this was talking about. If not, I don't think it changes a great deal the instruction we get out of this. So I'm not going to base a whole lot on that, uh, but but I do, that's, that's my uh, working uh, uh, definition is that, that we're dealing with that man. So he says, you know, uh, he's not just called to me, but to all of you. But sufficient for such a one, in that vague term, is this punishment, which was uh, uh, inflicted by the majority. Now, he says the punishment was sufficient. I think he means that the goal of the punishment was achieved. He's repenting. I think that was the point anyway for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. So it seems to me like the goal of the punishment was to get him to turn back to God. If the punishment was sufficient, I think he means he turned back to God. And uh, he says the punishment inflicted by the majority. I assume that implies that not everybody will want that's what you see today sometimes, right? You know, you see the church discipline people, and then there are some people who don't really, in practice, follow through with that and disassociate themselves like Paul exhorted them to. So I suspect that was true and You probably had some people who continued to associate with that man, even after they delivered him to Satan and said not to. Uh, but the majority did, and the majority had an impact on him. And so he says, now, you ought to rather forgive, comfort, reaffirm your love, so that he won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You, you don't want this man now that he's repentant to drown in some sea of remorse. You know, giving his repentance for him to continue beating himself up and feeling horrible and feeling distant from the brethren would be not appropriate. That's, that's not... Paul says, Don't do that. Reaffirm your love. I don't know if we'd see Paul that way. Maybe we're a little surprised that Paul is exhorting them, encouraging them. Receive him back with open heart You know, love him again, and, and just go out of your way to show him how much you love him. But the pendulum of punishment can swing too far. You know, they did respond. They had responded when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 5 like they should have. And maybe they went to the other extreme feeling like they needed to keep punishing the guy even after he's repented. And Paul says, don't do that. I've forgiven him, you forgive him. You know, it's not some personal wrong anyway. I mean, Paul didn't view him as having wronged him. He just wronged the Lord now when he repents he receive he's back with open arms. You know, they, they, they passed the test The punishment was sufficient. And now they ought to be just as eager to forgive him and to receive him back as what they were to discipline him. He says we don't want Satan to take advantage. We're not ignorant of his schemes. You know, Satan would love to turn good, this man's repentance, into evil, causing his downfall by overwhelming grief and remorse. To take by sin is the devil's proper work. To take by repentance is way more than he's doing. We don't want him to take back anybody who's turned back to the Lord. We want to surround him with our love and comfort and encouragement. And we've struggled with that as brethren overall. Think about this. What would have happened? I know this is Jesus' story, but Jesus tells stories to make a point. What would have happened if that prodigal son had first run into his elder brother instead of his father. <laughs> Whoa! You can imagine the outcome of that story would have been way different, right? You know, sometimes we act more like the elder brother than we do the father. I, I, I was in Brazil a couple of weeks in November and was, really was dealing with a couple, almost a third, situation very similar of a brethren who had in one case had been withdrawn from and was repenting and turning to the Lord. And another case, my I didn't see them, but I have been working with it. Now, in the third case, the brother actually wasn't withdrawn, wrong. He repented when his sins were exposed. But but what I saw in all of those cases, it's a little easier to talk about Brazilian situations than American, perhaps, is just real difficulty with the brethren receiving back, like I believe this passage says to, these people who repent. You know, there was so much reserve and so much suspicion and so much like how are we supposed to react when somebody who's been really wrong turns back to God? You know, Do we need to sort of make sure they still learn their lesson? I mean, should we really reach out to them or do we need to kind of hold back? I mean, I think there's a feeling in us sometimes that you know, we really need to keep punishing some. Or else maybe we'd, I don't know, maybe we'd get burned again. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But but uh, I, I was in a couple of different discussions in Brazil this time. One, I was with a brother who had done some really bad things, but he had repented. And I think sincerely repented. I believe everybody agreed on it. But he'd fallen back into some things. And he confessed them to me, and I said, I think you ought to confess them to some of the stronger men in the congregation, I suggested three that I would sit down with him and them and him tell them what he told me. Wow, he wrote out what he was going to say. That was really good. It was really good. It was open. It was honest. It was humble. It was heartfelt. I don't see how you could heard what he said and not be moved. And Grant, he is a serial adulterer and Two of the three were his ex-father-in-law and his ex-brother-in-law. That's hard. But he got done, pouring out his heart, crying, I think sincerely, not over much, but just really, really honest and open. And everybody just sits there. It's like, wow. You know, he just hung himself out to dry. And the first guy he talked, who was the non relative was was talked to me about him and said, "Well, you know, here's his pattern, and here's what he does." it, it turned out okay in the long run. And really, the ex-father-in-law is the one who really cared, and the one who really reached out to him the most, and, and said some very helpful things. Like me. And then I was in another situation with the a, a young man who'd been withdrawn from. He'd been away from the Lord for three years, and he had come back. And the first time he was back with some brethren, just a handful. But he said, I just feel like a pride of son. And he started talking about some of what he'd done and how he felt. And again, he was crying. Not, again, not for show and quietly. But you could tell he was really emotional. And everybody just sat there. Nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. And I finally looked to one of the young people about three years younger than him, he was 20, the young person I looked to was 17, I really was trying to suggest to him to go over and sit by him, but he actually spoke up and said some really, really helpful things. And it wasn't, in either of those cases, it wasn't totally that the brother didn't want to reach out, it's that we don't know what to do. You know, what's appropriate to do? How should you handle somebody in that situation? I think that's maybe our struggle as much as anything, and I think what Paul says here, really encourages us to have no reserve. You know, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort Him. We affirm your love for Him. So, I mean, on the one hand, we need to discipline. I mean, you know, we need to care about their sins and rebuke and admonish and exhort. And even withdraw ourselves from that, if that needs to be. And, you know, we can't worry about their feelings. And, and we can't take out for them because, well, we just care about them so much. You know, we must not become enablers. You know, we can't make excuses for them. We need to hold their feet to the fire and, and help them do the right thing, even by withdrawing ourselves if we have to. And and this idea that we'll just drive them away, or whatever, is not true. That's not what God says. We need to follow and trust what He says. But, when they repent, don't hold them at arm's length. Why would we do that? What makes us a little hesitant about embracing? We don't want to get hurt, Right? We don't know if they really will stick it out. They hurt us the first time. We don't make, want to make ourselves vulnerable and get hurt again. I feel that. Wow. The 20-year-old I love so much. And he's very close to me. And I spent about 10 days of the trip with him. It's hard. Because the next week after I left, he messed up three or four times. Pretty bad. He's doing much better right now, thank God. But that's hard. But but you've got to be willing to get hurt. To help and to love. And, you know, sometimes we get a little dumb. You know, it's like, if I embrace them, and I welcome them back, and tomorrow they go off and do something ridiculous, look how it makes me look. It makes me look so, so stupid, so naive. You know, I welcome them back when I should have known better. I should have known that I would make it anyway. You know, that kind of thing. You know, um, you know when, when somebody has, has done badly, and they return, they're vulnerable. They're a weak, fragile state. Obviously, they wouldn't have been doing what they were doing. And I love the father of the prodigal son. I mean, if there's anybody who was just a total irresponsible, ungrateful, you know, I don't know the word, wretch, it was that guy. I mean, what? Told his father, since you won't do me the kindness of dying, can I at least get the money I did not you did? And he went off to just blow it. having a great old time, far away from home, where he's doing things I'm sure his father would have very much disapproved of. And he gets down now, and, and he's just at the end of his room, and he has nothing, and he can't even eat. And he comes trudging back home. There was a boy who deserved a good whip, <laughs> And the father... Sees him, feels compassion for him, runs to meet him, hugs him, and kisses him, and throws a big party for him. Wow! Can you do that? Should you do that? You shouldn't have at least said, Son, I warned you. I told you this the way to be. You don't hear me saying that? We don't need to keep punishing. I mean, that's the point. Upon repentance, there needs to be reconciliation and restoration. I'm going to say something along this line to what I believe we ought to do with our children. I believe we have to discipline small children. I believe the Bible teaches that, even physically. But I don't believe that we should distance ourselves from each other. And I don't believe we should keep downgrading them when they're weekend. I think we love them. We don't take away our discipline. But we reattach we ourselves. We don't banish them. We don't say, well, I don't know if I want to be around you now, you've done so many bad things. We love them. We, we, when they're prepared, we do everything we can to re-establish our connection, our closeness, to reaffirm our love for them. Sometimes it almost feels wrong, but I believe that's what God does with us. And so, you know, i just just very encouraging to see Paul's attitude here, and, and I think that's the point of this section, is now that this man pen, receive him with open arms, it wasn't me. He was wronging. Don't don't keep punishing for my sake for crying out loud. And and realize Satan wants to use this. Don't let it. You get so close to him and you love him so much that it's great. False in Sort of a, an observation that I made in my mind. I wonder how you know these are generally the big things that we hold people that and more on budget. There's a really gross I wonder how often that wouldn't be the case if we invest our sins one another a lot more on, quote, smaller sins, right? If, if, if we just opened up to one yeah. another There needs to be more openness on both sides. More openness on the part of the sinner to ask for help and to be honest about his wrongs. And more openness on the part of those who are trying to help the sinner, trying to honestly admonish and review and show love in that life. Carl? how we our children after admonishing and punishing them. When we do that for ourselves, we get ourselves from God. We realize that we feel like we're incapable of any kind of real repentance. So look at David and Paul. When they became aware of the gravity of their sin, what did they did They threw themselves at God's mercy. Instead of running from them, which is what so often we do, we run from those who want to help us. From. And this man, is an example, of someone who needs them. Yes, good point to our remorse must not drive us to be self focused and feel sorry for ourselves, it must drive us to seek the Lord and seek our brethren. Great point. I agree. That young man went back home in that story of the 15th. That's where we need to go, no matter how bad we think. Joe. Could the difficulty of applying 2 Corinthians 2 be found in the difficulty of properly applying 1 Corinthians 5? No. What we talk about is like somebody brought shame upon the church, whatever that means. Instead of Paul talking about here in verse 4, 2nd his 2, he was crying literally when he wrote 1st and 5. I mean, I think if we could see teardrops on the soul, I think we would read that a lot differently. That man is dead. Now he's come back alive. How would we feel if we had one of our loved ones? Was physically resurrected. You know, I don't know if I should hug them or not. I don't think so. <laughs> we, we, we would run to embrace them. Amen. The second point. I'm wondering if this. He talked about comforting and consolation a lot in chapter one. Now he's asking them to it. Good point. Yeah, they need to come from consoling brethren. Other thoughts? Jason? I think sometimes it's hard for us um, when someone does repent. Sometimes we think, well, we don't really know their motives. Uh, we don't know if they're repenting just because they got caught or if they're sincere. So I think that's what does cause us sometimes to say, well, I I'm not, I'm not, I don't think they've been punished enough. I, I think I'm going to distance myself Because, you know, we we don't see that, the the sincerity behind it. It's, It's one of those, you know, are my kids sorry because I caught them or because they're really sorry? Yes. And I think the way we should react is loving. So there may be times in love to recognize someone is not sincere and help them to see that and help them to repent sincerely. But sometimes I think we're just protecting ourselves, afraid we're going to get burned. And if there's not some reason to see that's not sincere, then I think it's, I mean, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day comes and says, I repent, forgive him, that's Luke 17, 3 and 4, I mean, really? You know, how could you possibly, you wonder what he did, what do you do seven times in a day against him? you know, gossip about. It. The men come and re- say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said Then you do it again, and you come, and again, and you go. You were busy that day. You do it seven times in a day. <laughs> you know, but wouldn't it make you feel like, you are not been sincere? What do you mean you repent? That's this is the fifth time? So, I, I mean, I think I would rather assume the sincerity. But, but for the sake of love, if there's a real reason to see that someone's not, then I do talk to them about that, trying to bring them to true events. Jason? Uh, nine. Yeah. I believe Paul had tested them by what he said in First Corinthians 5. It's really testing their obedience by telling them to deliver them, him to Satan and to not associate with them. To me, they pass the test because the majority of them inflicted with in that much. That's my Matt? Yeah, good point. Uh, Matt says, 1 Corinthians 13 says, "...to hope and believe all things." And so better to be too naive than too suspicious. Great passage I had in my note 2nd Timothy 2, 24 to 26 really helps you see the attitude you all have. There was another hand over here. Anybody else? Okay, Okay, um, wow. Uh, 12 and 13. challenging, but this is cool if you understand Again, go back to what I believe the setting was. Paul had written this severe letter about which he had some misgivings after he wrote it and sent it with Titus. And I think he gave Titus instructions, meet me in Troas. I'll come to Troas. We'll meet up there. And, you know, they didn't have texting. They didn't have email. He has no idea. The best I can tell, Titus fared on the travel the reception of the Corinthians to the letter, and the Titus and he gets the trill and he found an open door to preach the gospel, and I'll tell you if there's anybody that loved to go through open doors to preach the gospel more than Paul, I don't know who it is and he was just so worried, about, and so worried about Titus, he couldn't stay he just had to move on to Macedonia I, I, I take it just Looking along the road as he went, trying to intercept Titus. I mean, probably a little easier back in that day. You're not traveling 70 miles an hour down the interstate, you know, in a car, you're by the highway and all that. But I suppose he was keeping real intent to try to make sure he doesn't miss him, you know, in passing. That, that's that's what I see. So so look at this. I mean, now when I came to Torres for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. <laughs> you know, it was wonderful to have a door open in the Lord. And Paul's a kind of man who nearly always takes advantage of that. But he cared about him so much. He just couldn't stand it.
1: He had to find Titus.
0: He just couldn't. He, I, I think he'd been too distracted. I don't know if he could have preached the gospel in Troy. He just couldn't stand it. He didn't know how to receive that letter. he written that letter. Was that the right thing to write? Did he write too strong? How are they doing? How did they receive Titus? Is Titus okay? It's just a wood letter. And and, and we're going to see this a lot more. But you just really appreciate it. He wasn't like a doctor keeping a clinical distance. He cared. And it bothered him. Sometimes it's like, should you let that happen? I remember I didn't grow up really caring about anybody but myself. And when I started to care about people more as I got older, it was like, wow, that's rough. Because then you feel their ups and downs and you, you know, it, it, it hurts. It's like, maybe I shouldn't feel this way. Well. Maybe I ought to just kind of distance myself from everybody. But I think probably shows, you no, know, we shouldn't care. You know, I, I love 1 Thessalonians 2 in that. That's a real helpful passage to show that. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 uh, as well. But but here you see that. You know, Paul shares his anxiety. And it shows them how much he cares for them, how deeply he cares for them. I mean, in situations like that, where rather you're worried about them... Do they do they draw your tears? Do they draw your prayers? Do you really, do you really, do you care that much? It's amazing Paul cared this. Morning. Now you see that the problems in Corinth had sabotaged a missionary opportunity Paul had. Right? You know, church strife hurts gospel work, and and the Corinthian problems robbed the people of Troas of Paul's preaching. You think about that. That's why. Right. That's that's sad, Uh, but that's the case. And so, if Corinth was doing better, Paul could have stayed in Troas, but under the circumstances, he just couldn't stand it, and he left and moved forward. Thoughts and common? What do you expect to be said next? I would expect him to report on the results, right? How did it go? You what he does? So we're going to think about why does he say what he says next? I mean, he leads us right up to, did he find Titus? What happened when he saw Titus? But what he says is 14 to 16. Okay, so you expect him to tell about his, you know, reunion with Titus, and he's going to wait Acts chapter seven, but he breaks off the, the narrative and the happy ending, and, and, and keeps him in suspense. Because here's what I think happens. You really got to follow this. So Paul says, "So I went out to Macedonia looking for Titus." Then Paul imagines the meeting with Titus that he just had, and the overwhelming comfort and relief he felt. And instead of telling that, he says, But thanks be to God. His thinking about the blessing of finding and meeting Titus and what he reported, instead it led him not to tell about the meeting, but led him to thank God for, for the great blessings he gives. You know, it was such a tremendous relief that it made him think about God. Great joys, great comforts, great relief ought to lead us to praise and thank God. Is that the way you would react? When you hear good news that you've been really concerned about, is the first thing you think, thank you God. May your name be praised. Thank you so much for hearing my prayers. Or do we just, we're overjoyed. We do not think about the Lord. We thought about it when we were praying for him, Then we forget to be thankful to him. Do we see God's hand in everything? Do we thank the giver then, or do we only enjoy the gift? So Paul is led by this to express his thanks to God, and just his joy, who always leads us, I don't know what I mean here, leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. I think the idea is this. I think Christ conquered Paul. And he was a prisoner of war. And he was in the victory march of the Lord as a POW. You know, you normally don't like that. You might want to be a POW. But Paul, was wonderful. To be conquered by Christ was a wonderful blessing. And he's thrilled to be Christ's captive. He says he leads us to triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in everything. So, through Christ, God conquered Paul, who's now marching in the parade, as a conquered prisoner, sort of put on display, and he manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Um, so, here's what I see. There, there is nothing as, you know, pervasive. Nothing as unsuppressible, is that a word? as a fragrance. I mean, smells go where nothing else will. You can, you know, you can, you can close the door, and it's dark. You don't see the lights. And you can maybe, you know, I don't know, put some sound stuff in, the insulation, the walls, and you don't hear the sound. But smells just go. You just can't stop them. And when the conquering army returned to the capital, there'd be incense burned to the gods. The incense would be like the smell of victory and of defeat, depending on which side of the coin you're on. And, and so that's Paul's analogy. He's, he's in the victory parade of Christ, and God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are the, a fragrance of Christ to God among those who have been saved and among those who are perishing. The one in the aroma from death to death and the other aroma from life to life. And so it looks to me like Paul sees himself as having this mission: to be the fragrance of Christ, to just spread the message of Christ so much that it just is everywhere. That 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 Paul's preaching about Christ spreads as much as a smell of wood, as an aroma of You just can't, it goes everywhere. It, it, it just, it's, it's his mission, it's his passion. Now the preaching of the gospel, the manifesting of Christ, it means very different things. For the general, for the soldiers, for the welcoming crowds, it's a of victory for the POWs and the defeated army. It's a symbol of slavery and death. And when we preach the gospel, it, it leads to the life or death of everybody who hears it. Because our eternal destiny is determined by our response to the gospel responsibility to be the bearer of an aroma so potent that it results from it, in either the life or the death of everyone who comes in contact with. And Paul just felt inadequate. He's like, wow. Who is adequate for these things? I mean the, the opportunity to preach the gospel and to know how people respond to that. That's that's where they spend it to. Paul just didn't feel adequate at all. He's sick, not self-confident, powerful, and and had a swagger and like put on a show. He just felt very inadequate, very overwhelmed. So I want you to think for a minute about what this is saying about our mission. I really love this idea. He manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. That's our mission. I, I love Isaiah 66. Maybe may be kind of an odd place to go for uh, this sort of message. But look at Isaiah 66. This is highly messianic. Last few verses of Isaiah. I just love this this idea. Understand the figurative of nature of the language of Isaiah, okay? I will set a sign among them. This is Isaiah 66, 19. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Wash, Tubal, and Jabin. To the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. That's awesome. Spreading the message Everywhere. To everybody in every land, and they bring it off to the Lord. People that they are bringing to God, and they bring them on everything. They bring them in on horses, chariots, litters, mules, camels, whatever they could get them on, and they bring them to the Lord, and the Lord takes some of the peoples from those distant lands who would never have known anything about Him and makes them Levites and priests. What it was? What an amazing thing God does. But our role in that is we take that message. Everywhere to everyone. Man, isn't that what you see? I've been studying again with a couple of people in the book of Acts. It's like, wow, there are so many themes in the book of Acts. But is there a more major theme in the book of Acts than just the proclamation of the gospel everywhere to everybody all the time? I mean, everything you look at, there's other things that, that he deals with, but almost everything. It's somehow related to spreading the message, spreading the message, Christ conquering more and more territory through the spreading of the gospel. That's our life. And so Paul, wow, he says a lot in three verses. You know, thinking of the Academic Titus, thanks be to God, who's leading me in his triumphal procession as a conquered person which is a wonderful blessing, because I get to spread the aroma of the gospel everywhere, the aroma that brings life or death to everyone, and who is adequate for these things. I would like for us to really focus for a minute on just this concept of our our life as manifesting the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. That's a big responsibility. I would like for everybody to have access to a songbook. That probably means one out of two, and it probably means nobody in the bleachers has one. How many people in the bleachers have songbooks? Right. Hardly anybody. So uh, let's work on that a little bit. We've got some songbooks today, and we'll get some songbooks to year, kind of every two years.